Welcome back. It's Sporting Lives episode 11, part three, the final part of the Richard Pittman trilogy. And, uh, well, we've been through all those big races of the past, haven't we? The Crisps and the Lanzarotes and the Pendles, uh, etc. And now we need to talk about broadcasting. So let's uh, jump back in and get Richard's views on that BBC and satellite racing broadcasting career. What, what changes... Um, have you seen in terms of racing broadcasting over the years? Has it changed for the oh, better? Vast. What do you think to it now? Yeah. Oh, the, the changes are vast. In the, we, when I joined the BBC, Julian Wilson ran it, you know, which is very unusual for a presenter to run it, but nobody else, they were all football mad. So Julian had an office and he ran it, did the contracts, all sorts of things. But he was very self-centered he was the boss and he wasn't going to let anyone and he only chose us people who were no danger to him you know jimmy lindley great at what he did but jimmy liked shooting going to hong kong managing a few horses um uh, i'd like to think i was good at what i did but i was i had other jobs and none of us are any danger to him you know and he was and he kept us in those drawers you know several times i tried to get out and about because we were always in little studios or boxes or things, and he wouldn't have it. Now, it only occurred to me a bit later. I mean, he used to brew cream his hair to make the grey look black, and, and he wouldn't go out in case the wind pushed it around. He was a little bit vain. And, um, and so we were stuck, and he thought all the viewers read the Telegraph, the Guardian, and te- uh, the Times, you know. No, a lot of people read the Daily Mail and the Sun and other, you know, viewers. So... And he did say to me when he joined, now look, he said, you're very talkative and you understand the game, but you've got to realise I am you and you are non-you. I mean, that's your, your persona, meaning, you know, I'm correct and you're just a jolly jockey. Um, so as long as we know that, that's fine. And, um, you know, I was kept in my drawer as paddock commentator, but occasionally... No, not occasionally. Every year he would go away for three months when there was little on over Christmas, initially to Barbados, that's with connection with Michael Stout, and then to South Africa. Um, so I had two or three months of enjoying being the boy, you see. And uh, there was a horse called Oh So Grumpy. So, of course, it came. I said, the next one we're going to see, very interesting horse from Ireland, Oh So Grumpy, named after Julian Wilson. Yeah, good line, yeah. I thought. When he got back, he said, just because I was four, five thousand miles away, don't think I didn't know what was going on. You know? and, um, so Jules would never let us get out, and we should have done. And funny enough, when he was away again, and, or I took over other times when he was ill, uh, I did a day at the Cheltenham Festival, Aintree, those sort of things when he wa- wasn't well on a couple of occasions. Um, I got the producer who who was a football man uh, to let me out. And I went to the start at Worcester and we, and we did the betting from the course, which used to come in the studio, you know, and, and it was adventurous. Anyway, Julian came back and didn't like what we'd done. I never saw the producer again. <laughs> he disappeared back to Wales. It's a harsh old time. Now I, I don't think, I, I mean, Julian was great in that era. What he did you know, he was a professional, an utter professional, knew the game inside out. He was a good punter, big punter, yeah. as was Peter O'Sullivan. Mm. And I might be digressing, but I've got a card 
of one of the last races Peter did, where he did his own colouring and his yeah. comments, you see. And on the, because he was frugal, on the back of this big card, he'd posted in two other races of the day, and they were small fields. And in the margin was uh 10,000 to 700 and all his bets were listed down there i mean peter was a big big punter yeah. and a successful punter because he had the ear people loved him and trusted him you know lester piggott um vincent o'brien people trusted peter great man and on that card when he gave it to me he had put up dear richard i hope you enjoy this and it serves many happy memories and it was an honor and pleasure to work with you well that was peter all over i mean you know i'm, I'm a scrubbing little little ex-stable lad you know he was a god you know he but he knew how to do things and peter was very clever when he was with the express he he dealt with sir max aitken the owner he didn't deal with a sports editor and when he was with the bbc he deal with a director general or someone, you know, not a, not a sports <laughs> editor. Great man, or some great. It was an era, Jonathan. It, well, I just 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 touching on that, you're talking about him being a big punter. Now, I only met Sir Peter, I think, twice. On one of those occasions, I actually got him to sign my race card just to say, just to prove that I was phoned to the ground. This was in the press room, the press room by this time yeah. at Newbury one day. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of signed you know, had a quick chat with me, obviously, just exchanging pleasantries. And I did see his betting slip. Now, I won't reveal the contents of what were on there, but there was, it was yeah. a serious amount of cash going on this next, next horse. Yeah. It was because we weren't out and about. My mother could have written the script for, for, for racing. We knew what we were going to do. and we, we did. Your initial question about half an hour ago was the difference. I mean, look at where they get the access they have you know the jockey cams have come on a million miles by the way i i rode around the national for the beep with a, a camera i remember that yeah we'll, we'll get back to that maybe or maybe not harvey um, smith was he harvey smith uh, that was before me but right. uh, i i actually went around with lester Pickett's daughter maureen maureen haggis and ernie fenwick who was an amateur um but the access they've got, you know, and, and cameras in the stalls and, uh, and they can go anywhere now because racing knows they need the television to bolster things, to advertise for the sponsor and everything. You know, we were only allowed to mention sponsors twice, you know, now they're everywhere. That's, that's life. No, I think their access is brilliant. And I, I, I love the team. They've got people to cater for everyone. But punters are pretty vitriolic. You know, it's Marmite, isn't it? You either love someone or you hate them. And I think someone who's grown tremendously since he started is Luke Harvey. You know, Luke was a jobbing jockey in his own mind, and he would say that. You know, he has done very, very well. He's knowledgeable, and he's funny, and he's, he doesn't mind taking the mickey out of himself. But that will annoy someone else, you know. Uh, no, I, I think the world on... To me, the outstanding person, Pundit, Norman Williamson was great, but we yeah. didn't, weren't able to get him very often. He was brilliant. Ruby Walsh has taken it to a different level. Even, even from McCoy and Fitzgerald. McCoy is head and shoulders. I saw him do a thing around Cheltenham with Lydia Hislop. And what he described, how a jockey thinks not just all oh, yeah. i go here i don't go here because of this and i don't make ground up there and when i go up to that bit of a slope 
you, you want to get a breather then. Let them come to you and let them exhaust it while you're filling your lungs. He was brilliant. And I, I just am so in awe of him as a pundit. I, I just gold yeah. dust. I, I, I mean, as somebody who's watched it for years and, and worked in, in racing broadcasting, but mainly radio-wise, um, I would say that when I watch Ruby, I could sum him up in three words, and that is no stone unturned. It, yeah. It just it, You can imagine that the the quality of him as a jockey and the preparation he put in. I know he was riding horses that were miles better than the rest quite often, but you've got to start somewhere. And, yeah. You know, he, he just gives the impression that he would watch every possible bit of footage. He'd speak yes. to as many people as he could. He'd still have his own opinion, uh, you know. Yeah. And he's probably he, and he clever enough to, 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 to change that, if you like, um, as he sees fit during those conversations and those that, that homework. But Jonathan, doesn't he weigh up a race afterwards? You know, he, I mean, I can only see watch about three horses in a race. He sees everything. And a bit of Ted Walsh's father in him, but Ruby's more refined. You know, someone will say, Daddy, you know, this day Zoom, they'll go to him in his home and say, um, and what about the second? Do you think it would have won if it hadn't? No, it wouldn't. You know, he's, he's adamant. And I listen to him. You know, not that's any great question, but I, it, I think, yeah, you're right. You are right. And you said it, you know, and he's not flowery about jockeys. You know, he, 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 he doesn't bat them out of the park, but he, he will, he gives a great praise of everything. I, I, I can't praise him enough. I just think he's, he's what it should be. I, having watched him ride in those big races, you know, I've said to numerous people that if I had to pick one jockey, to, to ride for my life in a grade one race, you know, on the right horse, I would have him every time. And, and apologies to AP and the Skews and all the greats, the Franklins, yeah, yeah. Uh, because there was just something cold, calm and calculating about Ruby, how he got on with the job. You might want to say that about some of those others as well, but um, he he just got the job done more often than not. And I know that people crib him for falling at the, crab him for falling at the last on a few occasions, but you've got to put the horse in the race to be able to, to fall at the last yeah. when you're still in with a winning chance. Yeah. No, I totally agree. The difference I would say with Frankham is his jumping, his presentation at a fence is outstanding. And you say ground gained in the air jumping is cheaply won as opposed to galloping it. So that's where Frankham was absolutely, and he's, he always had a brain. The first day I, did Newbury for the BBC, just retired. Frank has got the job. I went up to the top of the stands, you know, the press room to look at the course from a different prospect, aspect, sorry. And I saw this guy walking down the back straight and I picked my binoculars up, it was Frankham. And he was going down the far wide outside hurdle race and loosening the outside bit of the hurdle until it went down. And then he'd go around the other side and pick out a, strong bit of birch and prop it up and he did it all the way down the back straight and i watched him mesmerized up the home straight and i've run down the stairs and got to him and said hey franks yeah i've been watching you what on earth were you doing he said oh this horse i'm riding he said it's odds on but it can't jump it's a terrible so i altered the odds into my favor now how clever is that and it it did it knocked every outside hurdle down and won <laughs> brilliant man so you know they all had different attributes 
McCoy, I'd never known anyone with a pain threshold like his and the tunnel vision of Usain Bolt and all the rest of it. You see, why I would was just jobbing along as a jockey was I was a good loser. I enjoyed the ride. You know, it didn't burn me up if I was second. McCoy could have three winners and then a second. He'd be bashing himself to pieces and he'd go out in the next race and give it the ride of the centuries if he'd never had three winners earlier, you know. He, his pain threshold was amazing. I've seen him pick himself up in bits and then a bit of gas and air right in the next race. Skew was brilliant. He changed, as you know, the face of racing with Pipe, Martin Pipe, making the running on these skinny little things. Yeah. The field come to him and go away and win 20 lengths again. You, they changed things. Uh, Dunwoody was tunnel visioned. I feel sorry for him because he, who am I to be sorry for him? He had to stop riding because his shoulder didn't work for a couple of seasons. And he managed to disguise that. Um, and he had to stop. He was stopped from race riding. He didn't go out on his own terms. And it, it's taken him a long time, if he's still even got over it now. That's why he used to walk to the North Pole and climb yeah. Everest and do these things. He needed, needed to be challenged. So I think each era has very, very good jockeys. I, read, I did read uh, Richard's book. I read your uh, book as well, Good Horses Make Good Jockeys, which I found all, of all places. Uh, I was too young to be buying books at the time that that came out, but I did find it on a, in a second-hand bookshop in Halls up in North Yorkshire, not far from you know, the Midlands stables and all the rest of it. Um, when I was on a day trip out there, probably uh, 20 years 25p. ago. 25p? No, I don't think it was quite that much. Don't, do, <laughs> don't exaggerate. It might have been about 15, I think, or 10p. <laughs> Um, but so that was interesting, and that's where I first sort of really learned about Kilini. Um, yeah, reading about that, and obviously you've gone on to write your well, both fiction and non-fiction books um, with great success. Yeah, is there another book in you? Is it an autobiography? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote with Joe McNally, a good friend of mine, because he knew about betting. I wrote for sporting people in my life. Never had to worry about betting or anything. I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know a bookmaker, um, and uh, we stopped. Well, I don't been nine years ago, I suppose we did seven together. But Joe wanted to go a bit darker than I wanted to go, so he wrote a few more on his own. Um, during lockdown, I wrote 47,000 words to start or halfway through my second autobiography because there's so much in the that we haven't touched on within those years of, of the Grand National, the IRA bomb threats the void race you know alderniti yeah. to be part of these things was magic you know so i've written but like i've been with you today i i, I wasn't acerbic about julian but i was critical of his uh, his leadership uh, yeah. but anyway so and then i was critical of a press member who was very loud and thought he'd invented racing and joined the bbc as a gopher but told everyone in Lamborn he was assistant producer. And he took against me because I challenged him. When he'd say at these meetings we had in the morning, I'd challenge him. I said, no, you're wrong there. You know, you've never ridden on this course. I can tell you this. And from then on, he would do everything he could to upset my apple cart. But in the sense that I'd been there a long time, I had some gravitas, you see. I mean, for instance, they'd say or in the meeting, oh, and we'll, um, we'll do McCoy today. Richard, do you get McCoy at such and such? And, and he'd jump up and say, no, no, no. He said, um, 
Norman Williamson would do it better. He knows knows McCoy and uh, that sort of thing. And I didn't challenge that. I couldn't give a monkey who what, who did what, you see. And these sort of silly little things. And then at the Grand National, when Comply or Die won, at the morning meeting, I, I was given the brief of interviewing Willie Mullins, coming down the steps from the new weighing room, you know, on route to the paddock, uh, at a set time and you're there and you're ready and the crowds are all around you. Very great place to do someone atmospherically. And his job was to get the people to the commentators. You know, that was his job. And uh, I said to him an hour before, have you seen Willie? No, I haven't made contact. I can't get him, but you know, he'll be there. Five minutes before he came up and he said, I, I, I can't find Willie, but he's got to be in the pre-parade ring saddling. Um, we'll get him, don't worry. And uh, he said, don't tell Carl, who was the producer, don't, don't say, look, Carl, we can't find Willie. He said, because he's got enough on his plate. So I'm standing there and the, the producer says, um, okay, Pitters, um, a minute to live. Minute to live, no interviewee. I'd been in the game long enough to know I could talk to the punters if I needed, you know, talk around. So that was no Willie Mullins, you see. But as he said, 20 seconds alive, David Pipes walking down the south. David, David, here. Daddy and I talk about the horse. Of course, the horse wins. So I'm now a hero. But, but this guy had done this specifically to put me in the poo. Well, right. you know, it was a, it's a big day. And, it, and the team... No one else had ever done that. The team are, are bigger than that. So, so, oh, sorry, let me just put this in context. So looking at these 47,000 words, I said, well, I've been not great with Julian and I've run this fellow down. And I've been as honest as I could about everything and very praiseworthy because I, I admire everyone. So I stopped writing it. I thought it'll, it'll sell a thousand books and it'll cause so much hassle. I could do it. Look, my 78, I can do without the hassle. So mm. it's sitting there. But I've also written a teenager's book about a pony and a girl. And it's scruffy, the pony that wouldn't be written, in inverted commas, uh, or brackets, and Holly, the girl who wouldn't talk. And... They both have drama, traumas, that's why they got it. And it's a very, very good book. I love it. I, I even cry at the last paragraph, and I wrote it. <laughs> anyway, I sent it to my former publishers and my agent, had, or no, I sent it to my agent, and he, he sadly died, and his assistant just sent it back and said it's not for us. But it, 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 I know it's a good book, and it will, it, it will sell. But I'm lazy. I put it in a drawer nine months ago, done nothing about it. But I am going to contact a very good cartoonist called Birdie, who does great, yeah. great. I mean, he put one on the other day, after the inauguration day of the horse getaway Trump, <laughs> kicking Donald Trump up the backside with a big hoof mark on his backside and him flying with his hair all over yeah. getaway Trump. Very pertinent. I'm surprised the Racing Post don't use him every day because he's on the button. Yeah, he's quality, isn't he? Um, so he you're going to give us a Sporting Lives exclusive and, and name this BBC person? No, 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 he'll know, <laughs> he'll know, he'll know, don't worry. Yeah, well, listen, we've all, um, I can speak from personal experience, we've all had somebody like that as well. Uh, so um, I sympathise, empathise. Um, just 
if we can then briefly, if you've got the time, I mean, we've been on a long time. We could have done Richard Pittman the series, actually, um, rather than Richard well, Pittman the episode. We'll probably split cut it, it into... Cut it in half. Yeah, we'll cut it in two or three. Um, talk to me about the, the two nationals uh, in the 90s. I mean, I didn't... I almost went 93, but for some reason, at the last minute, I was a working man not doing media in those days. I didn't go, and I was really relieved having seen what happened yeah. that day. And then I was yeah. there in 97, which was the year I started doing media work. So on that 97 National Day, I was actually running a stag trip with a load of lads. Um, I was best man for, for a friend. And so I remember that from personal experience being there, which was, which was weird. We were, just to give you that, this perspective, we were in the Tats stand. You know, we just bought tickets yeah. for that. And you, you know the concrete slope at uh, entry. Yeah. I was standing at the back there. I'd lost all the labs. This is in the days just pre-mobile phones being popular. So they'd all disappeared off in a bar and I couldn't find them anywhere. Imagine yeah. how many yeah. thousand people are there. So the first race is run. We're waiting for the second, I think it was. Or was it two races have been run? We're waiting for the third. Yeah. And then there was the announcement, everyone must leave. And I, I just thought, I can remember disbelief sitting on the, the metal bar at the back of the tat stand and people yeah. were dispersing gradually. I don't think many people could yeah. believe what was going on. And I just thought, I was starting to get emotional thinking, this is, this is my favourite race. You know, I've loved the Grand National since I was a child. And somebody's, yeah. somebody's telling us to get off the track. What is going yeah. on? Yeah. Police horses actually yeah. rode up the, up, up the slope I'm and said to, told me to get off and said, if, you'll be arrested yeah. if you don't leave yeah. now. So yeah. obviously we never saw the race and I went back on the Monday to watch just for that rerun, drove the 70 miles from Leeds across there to, to watch it. Yeah. What, what about, that was a, an experience of a race goer on the track, just Jimmy Punter at the time. What about you? Amazing. I was in the paddock actually on air live when, when we first got the news of it and the producer said, don't stop talking, but listen, we're going to give you some shots shortly. They're evacuating the Queen Mother Stand. Or is it the Princess Royal? Princess Royal, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so talk about it. And, I, and I, what you talk about, because you don't know what's happening. And it was just this stand, you see, being ushered out. And I said, oh, we will have an interruption, a bit of a delay here. I would imagine that a fire alarm has gone off, you know, and it'll all be sorted out in 20 minutes. We'll all be back and national be great you know and and then of course it all gathered momentum and then they brought in other people oh before that i'm talking still you see off the top of my head and two female liverpudlian police officers came in and said you've got to evacuate now so i've switched off you see my sound and i said i'm sorry i'm live on air they said you're not now <laughs> they picked me up by the elbows and took me out. Of course, all your clothes are in there, you know, I'm in my shirt sleeves and my briefcase is in there and we've checked out of our hotel. But having watched it evolve after that, I mean, it was a brilliant piece of television because they went back, didn't they, through everyone and, and, and Des Lynham, the, the anchor was brilliant and everyone else, you know. And then finally, when no police had got to Jim McGrath, right down by Beecher's Brook, up a scaffolding in a, in a box, spoke for 24 minutes, you know, about what was happening. It was a masterpiece. He was quite, I mean, he's brilliant, Jim McGrath. He's, he, he was fortunate that he had as his race reader, uh, I can't remember now, 
young Brown who works up for uh, in Scotland for the for Gordon. Sky yeah. Gordon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I say young Brown. He's probably your Older age. Me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to talk for twenty-four minutes about things like that, quite amazing. And and when we got back on the Monday, all the cars in the owners and trainers had been gone through by the bomb squad and removed, but there were two left in there. A Range Rover, which I believe was Adam Ogden's, which had a rack of guns in it. And it was open and ammunition. Well, of course, they're going to look into that. And mine. And I've walked up to it. And Bomb Squad people aren't funny. You know, I joke with everyone. If they look at me, I joke with them. I walk up and they're going nudge, nudge like that. And I got there. I said, what's, what's up, boys? You know, what, my car. They said, you know. I said, no, I, I don't. I don't. So they sprung the boot. And there in the boot is a fully inflated blow up rubber female <laughs> i i used to do evening speaking and the night before the national you could go to a golf club and earn good money you see and i'd got a wig and a whip and tights and do silly things and it, it wasn't it wasn't rude this it was funny with a nude female who had a swimming costume but there she was in all her glory lying in the back blown up and hunched up with her um, oh i mean I, I didn't explain because they, I was as deep, and they just roared their heads off, you know. But what a time that was! And then, and then for Princess Anne, and was the uh, was it John Major was the Prime Minister to attend on the Monday? I think so. Yeah. You know, for them to say, "Well, to hell with this!" You know, we are going to we're we're British, we're stronger than this, and and to to come and support it. I think, and the people of Liverpool, what they did for everyone. Mm. And can you imagine the jockeys who? were all ushered out in their britches and boots and colours and eventually ended up in Liverpool and going to nightclubs, they didn't care, you know, in their colours. They had no clothes, you know, because all the cars were, were, were prohibited yeah. from leaving. Amazing yeah. times. It was. It was, a, it was a surreal experience going back on the Monday because you were, go, you know, like I say, I drove 70 miles for one race for 10 minutes of action. Um, but they... Then, once you'd got in the security, they allowed you to go anywhere. So I was actually standing on the roof rather than on the tat stand on this one. So I got a brilliant view of Lord Gilleen, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. beating my, my bet, uh, Sunny Bay. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, yeah, great. Well, strange occasion, but a notable occasion, I think, rather than a great occasion, I suppose, you'd have to say. Yeah. 93? Yeah. Um, I mean, that was just bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, and I'm convinced, uh, just to reiterate for your, your viewers, uh, Void after two false starts, and Dunwoody with the tape round his neck. But what lessons we learn from that? The flag man in an ordinary dark suit with a flag, you know, that big, dark red. You'd never see it, but I think he did move out of the way a bit, you know, whereas now... For the national, there are three flag men and they're in white coats and the flags are as big as the Union Jack you see on Buckingham Palace. You could not. And then there are people further down the course, you know, if need be to get on. So we learn that. But the, the starting tape, 50 yards wide, elastic, like yeah. that, blowing in the wind. I mean, oh, it was, it was waiting to happen. Hmm. 
So, but I love the starts now, Jonathan, what they've done, the BHA, yeah. brilliant. Where you must walk or trot in. If you can't, you have another goat walking and trotting. They did try the standing start, but that's still the option if, if there's two false starts, the standing start. But, you know, we've lived through all these races, Charlton Fest, where they just barge through the start, don't they? You know, it, yeah. it's one of the great things. And another thing, if I'm beating my, the drum, and if you want to go back to the, the other race, that's good, um, is the fact that they can only ride jockeys at one meeting now. This has given the chance for so many other jockeys who don't get recognition to now get it. I hope they keep that. Well, we'll, we'll see that um, they don't always follow uh, good sense, to the common sense with, with the decisions that they make, but things seem to be um, improving uh, from the days when everybody was uh, double-barrelled surnames and all that. Chumley Warner, yeah, and, uh, yeah, Hibbert, yeah. Hibbert Foy, of course. Um, Mr. Yeah, Hibbert yeah. Foy. But it was military run, you see, yeah. wasn't it? And uh, can I just tell you about Hibbert Foy? My wife's giving me wind-up signals yeah, here. Sure. But, um, uh, on that year, I'm in the paddock with Bill Smith, which was right over near the Liverpool Road in a scaffolding thing with a shed on it. And having done my bit and handed over to Peter to do the parade, I'd taken my coat off, you know, I'm lying back, loosen the tie, and I'm thinking, oh, in the chair, well, we got through that okay. And then the, all this is happening, and uh, the producer, Hoppo, um, Martin Hopkins, shouted in my ear, Pittman, get off your fat backside and get down there and find out what can happen. So I've run out, you see, in panic mode, and we had planks, scaffolding planks, which our hut was on, on this scaffolding, wet, and I slipped up, and I'm a little fat fellow, winded. So we all have people with us to make sure we get there. So this guy, big guy, picked me up with one hand by my overcoat, and has rushed me, and I'm still, you know, winded, not walking, and he's pushed me through the crowds, knocking people over, because that was his job, and we got to the start where they're all milling around Keith Brown, the starter, and he's pushed his way through there. He was in BBC, BBC, must get in And stood me upright, you see. And the wind is blowing my brim of my... I look like Charlie Chaplin. It's irrelevant what I look like. And uh, I said to him, Keith, can you tell me the world is watching? We were, we were linked into Hong Kong and they couldn't bet on their next race until ours was uh, uh, come to a result. So he was brilliant. He said, yes, I can tell you exactly what will happen. Anything that's fallen or completed one circuit will not be allowed to run again if we run again. Great, I've done my job. With that, a fist came through the, through the picture, right up against Keith Brown's chin, and it was John Upson who had Zeta's lad, the favourite. Yeah. And, 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 and at the end of the fit, he said, the next time I see you will be in court. Of course, they, we all disbanded. I thought I'd done a great job. I'm walking back. He said, Pittman, that was good, but not, we, we need more. He said, find a steward. So the stewards that day were in a porter cabin, up a scaffolding, four ladders high. So he went up four different levels, long way, ladders. No health and safety things. And I went to go up there, you see, cameraman, Sam and me. And there was a man with a big, 
beef eater hat and a sword, you know, standing at the bottom, guarding it. He said, sorry, sir, you can't come. Your stewards are up there. I said, yes, they've invited us up where the BBC invited us up to tell us what's happening, which amazing for such a wet person as me. Anyway, up we went, which was not easy. And we got to the porter cabin and I knocked on the door and out came Hibbert Foy, you see, who you mentioned. Yes, Pittman? I said, BBC, we're live around the, uh, we're alive. Um, can you tell us what is happening? What can happen? He said, you'll be told after the people on the race course have been informed. There were 70,000 on the race course. We've got 600 million viewers. <laughs> anyway, I said, Patrick, the world is watching us. He said, you'll be told and shut the door. <laughs> well, that, that typifies an age of racing that we hope is probably somewhere behind us now. Richard, listen, uh, you, you're getting the nod to go. Uh, so sorry, Mandy, for keeping him for so long, but he's such a great talker, um, as I'm sure you're fully aware um, from, from the last 40-odd years. Fantastic to talk to you, a real privilege for me, from the little boy who got the autograph at Weatherby Racecourse back in those days, and all the crisp and pendle. Um, but wonderful to uh, have you on on Sporting Lives as a guest. Many thanks for your time, Richard. Thank and we you. A COVID-free future. And um, yeah. that, uh, that 80th birthday schooling ride that you've uh, yes. talked about as well. Um, all Good memory. That. Good memory. We'll be there. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You're a gentleman. Many thanks once again to a great guest for episode 11 on Sporting Lives, Richard Pittman. Now, don't forget, you can, of course, keep up to date with what's going on with um, the podcast, who might be on next, etc. Um, some great guests lined up as well for 2021. So do follow on uh, at Sporting Lives 1 on Twitter or at Sporting Lives 1 on Facebook. You can, of course, get in touch on email on jonathandoidge at hotmail.com with comments on the pods or indeed any suggestions for future guests. Uh, many thanks for your support once again. Thanks to Richard Pittman. And we'll see you next time on Sporting Lives.